The mic is on. How's that? Better? So the, so the second question I'm coming to, say you go home from church today and there's a sheriff on your doorstep with a summons and there's fancy letterhead Dewey Cheatham and Howe is suing you for something. So now put your hand up if you're afraid of lawyers. <laughs> Some of you have experience. So when Dan asked me to speak about being on the front line and doing that as a lawyer in the 21st century, uh, you know, in Boston, I was thinking back to what does it mean to be a Christian and be on the front line 2,000 years ago, not as a lawyer, but as an outsider, not in Boston, but in the Roman Empire. And one thing Dan asked me to think about was, what does it mean to go the extra mile? Because as Christians, we're called to do that. We all remember the passage where Christ exhorted his followers to go that extra mile. Um, a little bit of context, you know, in Rome 2,000 years ago, and by Rome I mean pretty much the known world at the time, if you were not a Roman citizen, if you were an outsider, an Israelite, a conquered person, anyone on the fringes, a Roman soldier could command you to carry his burdens, but only for a mile. And what Christ asked his followers to do is not only be submissive to that law, but then to go beyond it, to exceed their expectation, and to go that extra mile unasked, unrequired. And so often in the law, uh, which I deal with every day, but many of you have dealt with, with personal reasons or just thinking about, our law exists not as a goal we're meant to achieve. This isn't Micah 6.8, what God calls us to in our being. This is not a, something to live up to, but instead a threshold we're not supposed to fall below. So if you look at the law in America and many civilized countries, our law doesn't say love your brother. It doesn't say feed and care for your widows and your sick and your imprisoned. It says don't kill anyone. Try not to steal stuff unless you think you might not get caught. And so the law exists for people in Rome 2,000 years ago, for us in America today, as a certain standard we're not supposed to fall below. But that's not God's law. That's our law. And the reason many of us are afraid of lawyers, or afraid of the law because the lawyer is just the tool through which the law works, is because it's power. And it's power that's not wielded by a just, benevolent God who's perfect in every way. It's power wielded by fallen man. And so lawyers have a skill. They have a skill with words, they have a skill with knowledge, and they can use that skill to do wonderful things or terrible things. And I think of Paul when he's preaching the gospel and he's speaking in Romans, he talks about how you'll be deceived by flatterers and smooth talkers. And I hate to say it, I think of lawyers as very smooth talkers who can convince and connive and accomplish things through that power. But then I think of Paul elsewhere in Corinthians talking about, I didn't come with a smooth talking message. I let the message speak for itself. And if something's true and good, we don't need to worry about how it's delivered. It'll be apparent. Uh, and likewise, if something is delivered smoothly, we can still recognize it for what it is. So as a lawyer personally, it's been my experience to deal with a lot of sharp practitioners, some of whom are upright, noble people, but many of whom look to the law as an opportunity to take advantage. They look for every misstep and they pounce on it. 
Um, I, you know, I, like every lawyer, have made mistakes, missed important things, and never has my opponent let that slide. They take the opportunity to gain an advantage and use that advantage ruthlessly. And generally speaking, that's acceptable, and in fact, it's respected in our practice. And what I've tried to learn from that is through the contrast between what Christ preaches and what we do now, and that is to give more grace because my fellow practitioners make those same errors and omissions. And when I see that happen and I let it slide, when someone says, I've missed a deadline, I need more time, or I just discovered a new reason why this shouldn't apply and I need you to consider that even though it's already been resolved, and I've taken that chance to rather than ruthlessly pursue what I've now got as an advantage, to say to the person, of course I'll give you that. I don't want to practice that way. I don't want to ambush people or take advantage of your ignorance. People are shocked by that, which is both encouraging and despairing. <laughs> but we can make a difference. And, and as Dan asked me to do, I've been thinking about, as a lawyer now, what does it mean to be a Christian on the front line? And a lot of it is, trying to follow Christ's example of meekness. And I think of lawyers in the past, and again, I go back 2,000 years to an outsider in the Roman Empire, and who is that? This is like Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. <laughs> who is that that is our counselor, our advocate? We look at the language of Isaiah, we look at it all through the Bible, how is Christ referred to? He's our lawyer. He intercedes, God is judging us, Satan is the prosecutor, we're in the courtroom, and who do we want to hire? Who is the most artful speaker? Who has that power and can use it to rescue us? And that's what I'm called to do, and by doing that, I don't use that power like a fury to just go in with scorched earth and accomplish what I think is right. I have to do what Christ did, albeit always failingly, but I have to try to exemplify that meekness. And so often we think of meekness as weakness, and it isn't. Just as bravery is not the absence of fear, but the action in the face of fear, so is meekness not the absence of power, but the restraint and the careful use of that power to accomplish God's purpose. And so I'm trying, and I hope all of us can try, to live that out by not relying on our human strength, not using our human judgment, not submitting merely to the human law, but to go that extra mile and submit to the law exemplified by Christ's conduct, to restrain that power and use it for his purpose and rely more on him in it. So, thank you very much. Floyd and I keep joking that if uh, if we keep asking people to share before we get up that we'll lose our jobs and no one will want us up here anymore. But I think it's good to hear from um, others and to hear how we're trying to do these things on our front lines. So this week we're going to be looking, as Alex just shared, about how to minister grace and love to the people we come in contact with. And we'll be doing this by looking at a familiar passage in Luke 10, Verses 25 to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, if you're like me and you go, oh, I know that one really well, I'm going to kick back, take a little bit of a nap here, I encourage you to reconsider because I want us to look at it in a fresh way, in a new light this morning. Because like we said, this third 
attitude actually stems from the two that we've discussed in the prior weeks. That we can't minister grace and love, as Alex alluded to, if we're not doing good work, which stems from modeling God's character. If we're not seeking to be Christ-like in all our actions, none of these things will happen. And part of that is ministering grace and love. So I want us to see this theme in this familiar passage this morning as we look at it in a new light. And particularly, I want us to see this. I want us to see that ministering grace and love is more than just seeing our neighbors. It's actually about being a neighbor. More than just seeing our neighbors, it's about being a neighbor. So, with that in mind, would you read along with me as we look at the parable in Luke 10, verses 25 to 37, as we seek to discover this together. Luke writes, On one occasion, an expert in the law, a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this familiar text this morning. Lord, may we have open hearts and minds to hear what you would have for us this morning. Would you shake us out of our comfort zones? Would you get us out on our front lines and help us to see what it looks like to be fruitful in our everyday lives? Lord, we want to serve you. We want to be obedient to you. Most of all, we want to be good witnesses and disciples of you wherever we go. So help us in that endeavor. Be with us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come to this text in Luke 10, Jesus has just welcomed back his, his 72 missionaries, right? He sent these people out to go spread the good news, and they come back and they're just blown away. Jesus, things are going so well. People are responding so well to your word. This is incredible. And I, guess, I just imagine there's this large crowd as Jesus is praising God for their faithfulness and for the fruit that has come from their work. But apparently that didn't last very long. Because right in the middle of this text, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
So this lawyer comes and interrupts this great praise. The lawyer was here to test Jesus' knowledge of the law, but instead of answering him, Jesus responds, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You know, he throws the question back at him, kind of as Jesus can only do. The lawyer does well in answering that it's summed up in loving God with your whole being and loving others as yourself. Jesus has summed it up just like this elsewhere, so of course he finds no issue with the lawyer's response. So Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now the second the lawyer hears, do this and you will live, his mind's going to Deuteronomy, his mind's going to Leviticus, because that's the promise of the law. The promise of the law is if you do these things, you will live. But we know, and Jesus knows, that the point of the law was to show us that we couldn't keep it, to show us that we couldn't uh, live up to that standard, and that we should come before God uh, humbly in humility, asking for forgiveness, asking for him to help us. But instead, the lawyer doesn't come like that. Instead, he realizes this. He responds, instead, with, not with a confession of guilt, but instead, like the text says, desiring to justify himself. He asks the question, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches into this parable that we know so well. He says, a man is coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho on this, this treacherous, rocky, winding descent of about 3,300 feet, 17 miles This path was notorious for being beset with thieves and danger. So everyone listening is already on the edge of their seats. Whoa, what's this guy doing on this road? That's he's already he's he's out for he's out kind of for like a suicide mission here. So everyone's on the edge of their seats. Sure enough, he's traveling, he's robbed, he's beaten, he's stripped naked, and he's left for dead. As he lays there clinging to the last little bit of his life, a priest sees him, but as Jesus says, he passes by on the other side of the road. Sure enough, here comes a Levite, someone who works in the temple, sees the man also, does the same thing, passes on the other side of the road. And finally, a Samaritan comes on by and sees the man also. Now, we know that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along, so the lawyer, who's already shocked that these two men of God would have seen this half-dead man and walked past him, has his floor, has his jaw absolutely hit the floor when a Samaritan of all people is on this road. Because for a Samaritan to be on this road would be risking not only the thieves that are out there, but would be risking hostility from everyone who would come by. So we could almost translate it, so this crazy Samaritan comes down the road and he sees this man, but he does something different, right? The, the repetition, they see and they walk on the other side. They see and they walk on the other side. They see, and the text says he has compassion. He has compassion. He pours oil and wine into the man's wounds, his little makeshift first aid kit, if you will. And then he puts him on his own animal. He takes him to an inn. He gives the innkeeper two days worth of wages to take care of the man. Now this money, this would have been plenty to take care of the man for that time, but just in case the man says, and if this isn't enough, I promise when I come back, I'll give you more. And as Jesus finishes, he turns to this disruptive, this self-righteous lawyer, and he asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell upon the robbers? And the man 
who's probably embarrassed and too proud to even say the nationality of the man who did the good deed, merely says, the one who showed him mercy, to which Jesus responds, you go and do likewise. So what do we take away from this text about what it looks like to minister grace and love? Obviously, there's a lot here. But let me contain our time this morning to two things that I think shows us that ministering grace and love is not just about seeing our neighbors, but is about being a neighbor. First, the text shows us that we must have eyes open to see opportunities to extend grace and love. We must have our eyes open to see these opportunities. Because like I said, in this parable, there's this cycle of somebody seeing the man and making a decision on what to do. Again, not just seeing our neighbors, but making a decision about what to do. The priest sees him, passes on the other side. The Levite sees him, passes on the other side. The Samaritan sees him, has compassion. So the question is not merely do we see these people. It's easy enough, you know, to see our neighbors, to see our coworkers, to know who they are. But do we have what I call the eyes of Jesus to see those who are in need around us and will we decide to stop and help them? Because I often fear that our American lifestyle is too fast-paced and it's too much based on performance and getting things done for us to often take the time to stop what we're doing and say, you know what, I think God wants me to extend grace and love to this person right now. I remember about a year or so ago, um, a brother from this congregation gives me a call and he says, Dan, I think that we should go to the open door and I think we should just go eat with the people there. And I had talked to the guy who runs the open door, and that's totally okay to do. It's, you know, it's a community meal. It's open for anybody. But being an introvert, that was like the scariest thing I could think about doing, right? Going to a place where I didn't know anybody and sitting with people I didn't know and eating dinner with them. That just sounded terrible. But he said, you know what? I sucked it up, and I said, all right, you know what? This is a good thing. I should do this. Let's go. So we go, and we're in the car, and I go, all right, where are we going to sit? And he goes, you know what? Let's sit at different tables. And I go, oh, you're kidding. You're killing me. I said, I already don't know anybody. Don't make me sit. He goes, no, no, that's it. We're sitting at different tables. Don't even, don't even look at me. Don't even act like you know me. Like, oh, geez. So, so we go in and we sit at different tables. And, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm trying to, like, not make eye contact with anybody. And finally, there's a guy sitting across from me. And I just, you know, hey, I'm Dan. This is my first time here. Who are you? And we start talking about stuff. And, you know, we start talking about sports and random things and all this stuff. And as we're leaving, I don't know why, I just, this guy just said, you know what, here's my number. If you ever want to talk, just give me a call. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. This could really come back to hurt me. But uh, you know what, here's my number. So I leave, and, and sure enough, this guy calls me, and he's texting me. And we've met a bunch over the last year and a half. His name's Rich. Many of you have met him. He's come to uh, cookouts that we've done. He's, he's constantly calling me. He wants to play chess. I'm terrible at chess. He kills me every single time. But I really have to like, thank this brother here who's, who's here and, and that he saw people who needed compassion. He saw people who needed love and needed grace. And he said, Dan, we should go be conduits of that. And as terrifying as that was for me, and still is, even if I had to do that again, I'd still be just as terrified. It was an opportunity where a brother of mine had the eyes of Christ to see people who were really hurting and really in need. Because doing 
this type of work, ministering grace and love, is usually not easy. It's usually pretty messy. And it almost never benefits us. It never comes back to benefit us. At least in a tangible way. But it's the result of what it looks like, as Alex told us, to model God's character, to do good work, and to answer the call of what Christ commands us to do. So think about your front lines and ask yourself, are there people hurting there? Are there people who are broken and beat up and in need of grace and love from God that I could be a conduit of? And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if you're really honest with yourself, the answer is yes. The answer to every single person here is yes, there are people hurting and in need of the love of Christ wherever you go. So we see that we must have eyes open to the opportunities to extend grace and love to those around us. Second, the text shows us that ministering grace and love will require us to break down what I've called predetermined human boundaries. We have to break down predetermined human boundaries. Because here's the thing, we've always read this parable, we've always heard it preached, and we've always heard it preached with the, with the point that you need to do good to those who are considered your enemies, right? Do good to even those who you wouldn't want to do good to because they're your enemies and you should do good to, for them. But Jesus is making the point here, not that it was weird that the Samaritan helped this man, but that the Samaritan did something when no one else did anything. Again, I'll say that again. He's not making the point that it was weird that the Samaritan helped the man, it was weird that the Samaritan did something when no one else did anything. Let me try to explain what I mean by that by looking at the text. First, when the lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor, he would have been of the mindset of the Pharisees, the lawyers of that time, who would have understood that their neighbor is only those who are righteous, only those who do good things, because you know there was this sense that you should actually hate those who are enemies of God. They're, they're the bad guys. They're the enemies. We shouldn't like them. We shouldn't do good. They're not our neighbors. So the lawyer, coming to test Jesus, test his knowledge of the law, says, and who is my neighbor? Let's see if I can get him in a trap here. And Jesus, as we're so accustomed to, he breaks down this barrier. He breaks down the, the predetermined human boundary of nationality, of race. And he doesn't answer really the question of who is my neighbor. Because he would have known that the original passage here, Leviticus 19, that talks about loving your neighbor, was primarily saying Israelites love other Israelites. And if there's foreigners in Israel, love them too. It was very, you know, there were boundaries to this love. And Jesus is saying there's no boundaries. Neighbor love has no boundaries. It has no boundaries. And Jesus, as we're so accustomed to doing, tears down this wall, shows, makes obvious that everyone is our neighbor, even those who do not believe in God and who maybe are not part of the little niche that we find ourselves in. Again, Jesus' point is not who is the neighbor, but what does it mean to act like a neighbor to everyone? Again, let me look at the text to see what I mean by this. Jesus begins this parable by saying, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask an honest question. Who here has always read that text as a Jewish man went down from Jerusalem? You've always kind of read that text and said a Jewish man has gone down from Jerusalem 
And how weird is it that a Samaritan is helping a Jew? But if you read the text, Jesus leaves the man neutral. He leaves the man anonymous because he doesn't want the lawyer to already have a predetermined alliance, allegiance to this man. He doesn't want the lawyer right off the bat to say, he's a Jew, we got to help that guy, or he's not a Jew, let's leave that guy for dead. He just says, a man is going, and he's stripped of his clothing. I mean, there is no marker to tell you who this guy is. It's the equivalent of, you know, you just see a Caucasian on the side of the road, and you don't know his nationality. You can't say, oh, I'm only going to help Americans, you know, be all self-righteous. You have no idea. He's naked, he's dying, you don't know. You just know that he's in need. So there's no way to tell who this man is. He could have been anybody. But here come a priest and a Levite who, according to the law, have a moral obligation to help those in need, and they have an obligation to dispose of neglected bodies. But they just walk on by. Jesus doesn't tell us why. He's not really worried about why they don't help. Is it because he's not Jewish? text doesn't say. Is it because they don't want to be defiled? Pretty unlikely they're leaving Jerusalem. It's not like they're going up to the temple to do their temple duties. They're leaving the temple. They're going away from Jerusalem. doesn't say why they don't help. We just know they don't. But you see, the actions of priests and Levites at time, because of who they were, would have been looked at as being self-evidently righteous. And what I mean by that is whatever they did, people looked and said, that must be good. That must be right, because of who they were. But here the lawyer is listening to this, and you know he's sitting there going, that doesn't, that doesn't seem good. It doesn't seem good that these people just walked on by this dead body. So the first shocker in this text is the lawyer is listening is that those who are expected to be righteous by identity alone fail to do this good thing. The second shocker, as we read, is that the Samaritan coming strolling down this road. Before we even get to what he does, it's, it's a shock that the Samaritan's even on the road. As we said earlier, this guy must have had some sort of death wish to even be on this road. But hear this. If you haven't been listening this whole time, hear this. I know you're listening, but What distinguishes this man from the other two is not who he is as a Samaritan, but what he does when he sees the body. The difference is not Samaritan versus the the two Jewish men, but it's this man had compassion, right? They see, they walk away, they see, they walk away, they see he had compassion, Compassion is the difference here. So this parable isn't about a Samaritan helping a Jew. It's not about loving our enemies. Jesus' point is that it's more important to act like a neighbor than to just know who your neighbors are. Because we as Christians know that everyone is our neighbor. We know that we're supposed to love them. But Jesus' point is, well, are you actually going to do something about it? I I like how Joel Green summarizes this, this in his commentary on Luke. It's a bit lengthy, but I think, it's, I think it's excellent. He says this, The care the Samaritan offers is not a model of moral obligation, but of exaggerated action grounded in compassion that risks much more than could ever be required or expected. He stops on the Jericho Road to assist someone he does not know in spite of the self-evident peril in doing so. He gives of his own goods and money, freely making no arrangements for reciprocation. 
In order to obtain care for this stranger, he enters an inn, itself a place of potential danger, and he even enters into an open-ended monetary relationship with the innkeeper, a relationship in which the chance of extortion is high. Now again, that's lengthy. The reason I bring it up is the point of this whole parable is the Samaritan is crazy in this passage. What he's doing is not normal. It is incredibly strange. And Jesus' point is that it's not about just seeing neighbors. It's about being a neighbor, even to someone who you don't know who he is. You don't know what he's about. You don't know anything about him. He reverses that original question of who is my neighbor, and he asks the lawyer at the end, now who has proven themselves to be a neighbor? He's not worried about who is your neighbor. He knows the answer. Everybody's your neighbor. Who in this passage proved himself to be a neighbor? Because the lawyer assumed that everyone else had to prove themselves to him before he could help them. You had to prove yourself before I'd be willing to help you. But Jesus is saying, everyone is your neighbor, and the real point is actually serving them when they are in need, no matter who they are, and no matter what the cost. Because neighbor love knows no boundaries. Neighbor love isn't interested in who it is that requires love, only that we are called to extend it. And neighbor love is what stems from that unending love of God. So we have to not only see, have the eyes to see the opportunities for, to extend grace and love, but we need to break down those predetermined human boundaries and realize we just need to do it. Right? Almost like Nike. I'm up here doing the Nike. Just do it. We just need to do it. Jesus' point is you know what you're supposed to do. Are you going to do it? So what do we take away from this? Let me, let me suggest a few things. And like I did last week, let's, I want to conclude with a little bit of food for thought. First, Ministering grace and love is about going above and beyond the expectations and responding with greater generosity. Above and beyond the expectations. Like Alex told us about that passage about going the extra mile, right? It's about going above and beyond. Oh, you want me to carry your burdens for a mile? Let's just go too. I know that's not going to help me in any way. I know I'm not going to get paid back for that extra mile. But it's responding with even greater generosity. Because this, this man is half dead. I mean, what are the priest and the Levite going to do anyway? They don't have to help. The Samaritan doesn't have to help. Grace and love don't have to, but they do. They say, here, use my medicine. Sit on my donkey. I'll pay for your stay at the inn. I'll give more money than is even needed because I want what's best for you. Because let's be honest, God doesn't have to love us. God doesn't have to forgive us our sins. He doesn't have to come down in the person of Jesus and die for us. But he did. And he'd do it again if he had to because he doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care who I am. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care. All he knows is that you're beaten, you're bloodied, you're naked, you're dying, and you need grace, and you need love, and you need someone to save you. So thinking about your front line, what are things that you might do that you don't have to, but might be a blessing to those around you? Second and similar, I think we see here that we've set the standard for ministry and for loving others too high often. What I mean by that is we often think it's not, 
It's not good enough to be called ministry unless we do this grandiose thing, unless, you know, it looks like something that's big and, and, and flashy. But sometimes we're just called to do the little thing. Because I think what happens is when we set the bar too high, it actually paralyzes us from doing anything. We go, well, I could do this, but, you know, that's not good enough, so I won't do anything. But ministering grace and love is often about doing the small things to serve others. Right? It's about pouring some oil and wine into wounds. It's about giving up some comfort for the sake of others. It's about using some of our money to meet the needs of others. Mark Green says it's more than just sheer kindness, but it's about wanting and seeking the best for someone else. It's all about having our eyes open to tear down these boundaries that this world has built up and saying to those in need, I am here to serve you. Many of you know the church in in, uh, Manchester. It used to be Manchester Baptist. Some of you have come from that church. Um, It's now called Cornerstone Church. But the pastor over there uh, was a church planner. And he was a church planner down in Boston. And he's brought a lot of that same mentality of doing outreach and, you know, getting out in the community up to Cornerstone. But one of the things they do is they've... They talk to the the city and they say, what are the things that you're doing that you just need volunteers for? And they just send volunteers from the church. And what they do is they go and they have these shirts that say Cornerstone Church on them. And on the back they say, we're here to serve you. That's all it says. We're here to serve you. And he said that when he was down in Boston, they did the same thing with these these churches. with his church down there, is they had these shirts that said, we're here to serve you. And they started to just be known as the serving church. You know, they're the church that serves. They didn't know anything about the church. They just knew they were the church that serves. But that's kind of the example. That's kind of the mindset that we as Christians are supposed to have. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what it is. We're just here to serve. We're here to see the needs, to meet the needs, and to serve people in need. Finally, And I I think it's just, you know, a nice bookend, because Alex said this. But this type of attitude is countercultural. It's countercultural. It doesn't make sense. You see, the world says to us, keep your stuff to yourself. Store it up for a rainy day. Keep your head down. Get your work done. Don't worry about other people. Just just do it yourself. But this type of living, this, this Samaritan living, this neighborly love, this makes the world stop and say, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> it makes them say, why on earth would you do something like that? Like we said, we could, we could recall this parable, the, the parable of the crazy Samaritan, because it doesn't make sense. The world tells you to do something different. Jesus says, do something that's countercultural. Maybe it's as simple as, you know, bringing in donuts and coffee for everyone at your work. Maybe you sacrifice a break to listen to someone who is hurting. Maybe it's going out of your way to take care of a need that you know someone else has. But this is the type of stuff that makes the world stop and say, okay, tell me why you're doing this, because you're being kind of weird right now. (laughs) Tell me why you're doing this. Because Jesus ends this passage by saying, go and do likewise. And I like it. It's kind of, it leaves the lawyer uncomfortable. It leaves us uncomfortable. It, it kind of just hangs heavy in the air. Go and do likewise. And you kind of, you sit there and you wonder, did he do it? And it kind of makes us uncomfortable because we sit here and we go, will we do it? Go and do likewise. Let me conclude with this final quote and some food for thought. It says, go and do likewise, presumably meant 
Go and show the same mercy to those who would not expect it. To those who would feel that they are excluded by religious commitment, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, social class, whatever it may be, go and minister grace and love to those who at least expect it from you. Because we've all heard enough stories of people saying, where is the church in all this mess? Where are the Christians? Like the priest and the Levite, we have too often closed our eyes to those in need of grace and love around us. But it's all about starting small. It's all about just having eyes open to seeing those who are in need. So ask yourself these questions as we close here. First, what stops us from acting with grace and mercy? Is it fear? Is it pride? Is it busyness? Is it distractions? Ask God to break down these walls in our heart as we seek to serve those who are dying in ditches all around us. What stops us from acting with grace and mercy? And second, in the point of Jesus, is where will you begin to do this? Where can you begin to minister grace and love to those who are in the proverbial ditches around you, broken up, broken, beaten up, and dying? Because Jesus says, go and do likewise. How will we answer that call? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we love you for this text. Thank you that we could look at it afresh this morning, that we could think about it new. Lord, we've heard your command to us, go and do likewise. Show us, Lord. Show us in our families, in our workplaces, in our everyday lives, as we run errands. Show us what it means to just extend your grace and your love to people who need it. Whether it be big or small, Lord, help us to just start to do these things. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the power. Give us the strength. Give us the energy to do this. Lord, we want to do these things. We want to be used by you. We ask that you would use us this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand and continue to praise our God, singing hymn number 98, Now Thank We All Our God.
We've come now to our time of prayer, that time where we surrender in prayer and praise. So I would encourage you to take out the yellow prayer sheet and, uh, and let's go to prayer now. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men the testimony given in its proper time. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you now. We offer up to you our prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We recognize who you are. We recognize your authority. And we come to you now and pray that you would hear us as we pray. 